0: Hello everybody and welcome along to uh, this episode of Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. You're listening to Edie editor Luke Nichols here at our headquarters in uh, fairly bright and sunny uh, East Grinstead here in West Sussex coming up on today's show. We'll be talking green policy priorities for the new government with the founder of behaviour change charity Hubbub.
1: If government doesn't play the game then industry... You know, it becomes a lot, lot harder for industry to do that. And also, the laggards can get away with, with doing nothing.
0: And we'll be heading under the canopy with the senior vice president of sustainability at SC Johnson for a virtual reality tour of its work in the Amazon rainforest.
2: When Conservation International approached us with an idea about a virtual reality film, I jumped at the chance, because it would allow kids and parents and teachers to really experience the Amazon, and then perhaps want to protect it.
0: So yes, hello everybody, Um, welcome along to this 24th, 25th, 20 something episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, Uh, I've been waiting for for a while to say this, but we're back uh, together in the studio, Uh, the ED team are reunited, because I'm joined by uh, the Anton Deck of Sustainable Business, uh, that is... Edies Matt and Matt Mace and George Ogilby. How are we doing guys?
3: Yeah, very well. They could have they could've kept this place clean while uh while it was out of action, a bit dusty, but <laughs> it's
0: fine, it's all fine. Do you like the the Ant and Deck analogy? You think
4: that's quite fitting? I was thinking more Morecambe and Wise myself, <laughs> but um, cannon
0: and ball, yeah. <laughs> so uh what have we been up to this week? Uh, busy week, any highlights? Yeah, um busy speaking to a lot of businesses, which is what you
3: want in uh <laughs> it's the GR job requirement, isn't it? But um nice chat with uh, Carlsberg to kickstart the week announced some ridiculously ambitious um, mm. targets for their for their new kind of corporate strategy after mm-hmm. 2030 um, I was in London yesterday for the HP Circuit Economy Summit again they've announced their new strategy as well um, along with a, a really impressive initiative out in Haiti wow. so yeah it's been um, it's been all systems go busy week yeah
0: busy
4: week. George um, I've I've taken more of a backseat role this week after being uh, having a heavy influence, I suppose, in our coverage of the green policy aspects last yeah, week. Yeah. So it's been nice to just take a bit of a uh, sit back and uh, go out and enjoy some of the sunshine. I think I've yeah. enjoyed it too much. I've uh, got a bit of a, <laughs> a, bit a, bit of a tan sunshine. going here. If you see, uh, look like a bit of a yeah. drumstick. You call
0: that a bit. tan? It looks just more like a typical sunburn it just
3: looks like you're wearing white socks really yeah
0: <laughs> so uh yeah you're right there it's been uh, i think everyone's feeling a bit of a, a almost like a hangover aren't they from the the, the green policy mm. stuff or just the policy stuff that had happened the election i remember that night george almost seemed like we didn't sleep didn't it It was a strange one kind mm. of waiting through the night because but yeah usually there's um w- with uh, you know election policy announcements you have some feeling for which way it's going to go but with that one it was oh, on a knife edge um But that's all we'll mention about policy um, this week. Uh, And yeah, for me, um, Tuesday was a bit of a highlight. I've met Paul Hawkin, who is hopefully some some of the listeners have heard of him. He's the uh, environmentalist, entrepreneur, uh, author, activist. Uh, He's just about everything, actually, when you look at his career profile. Um, One of the most amazing careers and people I've uh, come across. So I sat down with him for an episode of this podcast, uh, which is going to be going out in a couple of weeks, um, and he was alongside um, Interface's Chief Sustainability Officer Erin Mizan. Uh, so that's yeah, fascinating chat, uh, which will be going out in uh, over the next couple of weeks. Looking forward to it. Yep. Yeah, no, honestly, I was really blown away by um, everything Paul Hawken had to say. Actually, it's a good hour-long chat. Anyway, um, speaking about being blown away, how are your lungs today, guys? Feeling feeling good? Breathing well?
3: Yeah, um, it's a nice busy road just outside, so now i want to stroll down there just to, you know, breathe in the tailpipe emissions, but it's Mm. not too bad.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I'm asking this because we are, um, I mean, we're recording this on uh, what is the first ever National Clean Air Day. Um, So, yeah, UK's air pollution levels have got so bad that we have to actually celebrate cleanliness within the air, Mm. which is... A little bit sad if you look at it that way, but it's also about, um, you know, raising awareness of these issues. It's set up by uh, the Behaviour Change Charity uh, Organisation Global Action Plan um, to really educate people <clears throat> on air quality issues and, I guess, try to drive improvements. Um, and we had Chris Large on the show, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago, or almost a month ago now, talking about the launch of Clean Air Day and... Um, and George, you pulled together some quite uh, shocking stats, didn't you, about some, about mm. air quality in this article this week? Matt, did you read any of those stats? I did, yes. Well, um, you did. I
3: was, yeah, I, I was <coughs> anticipating a quiz, so I thought I won't. You you've, you've, done, you've done well. Man. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, no, uh, I, I was going to ask you guys. So this would be an interesting one. Can it, can you remember what the, the the words you wrote, George? And can you remember it? said, so, do you know how long it took London to breach its annual? Air pollution mm, limits, yeah. you both know this. Yeah. Right. F- five five days. Talking to the wrong Diesel vehicles. How how respon- how much responsibility do diesel vehicles have for all nitrogen nitrogen dioxide? Emissions I think i know. in the so do I. In yeah. big cities gone.
4: I'm gonna say eleven <laughs> percent.
0: George is saying eleven percent. Oh, I thought it was seventy two. <laughs> right. You're both you're both wrong. <laughs> I think it's about in the middle, it's forty <laughs> <But laughs> no yeah. percent. I think seventy two Percent and 11 percent are both in this, this we'll the uh, stats, and uh, yeah, I think the surprising one you're talking about, George, is the um, how much more exposed are children to pollution levels around busy uh, roads absolutely. due to their high. So, I suppose you're a little less exposed, aren't you, being excessively tall? Um, but yeah, they're 11 percent more exposed being close to the ground around roads in Britain. Um, anyway, so um, I know this episode we broadcast on Friday, the 16th of June, so um, it's a one day after National Clean Air Day, which makes this, I suppose segment a little bit less relevant um Completely redundant. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but just before coming up to the studio actually I received a press release um telling me that it was uh, it's world sea turtle day on Friday which i suppose you know it's worth a mention uh, anyone got any facts or something interesting to tell us about sea turtles uh
3: no my my, my facts usually just stick around chickens and fish uh, right okay. i have a weird knowledge of that do you like I, wouldn't that. To, I wouldn't be able to wouldn't be able to although chickens are related to dinosaurs I think Right. Yeah, there you go, there's one for you.
0: Right. Oh, um, Not to do that, but yeah, no. Uh, I've got a couple of sea turtle facts for you. I thought it would be interesting listeners mm. might like it. Um, so they can migrate very long distances. Uh, the record is for a female leatherback, uh, which swam nearly 13,000 miles over 647 days. Oh, my God. In Indonesia to the west coast of America. And despite sea turtles being very adaptive, six of the seven marine turtle species are considered critically endangered, endangered or vulnerable on the IUCN Red List. Um, So yeah, we need to do more to protect the sea turtles. I think that was the release I just received from WWF. Um, So there you go. This podcast's educational as well as inspirational. Um, So we've covered off sea turtles, covered off air quality. George, this is usually the point in the show where we make a segue... To the first interview of the show, which is yours, so you've got to make a segue somehow from what we've just been talking about to, mm. to your TV. Well, I'm not sure
4: I can make a, a direct link with Sea Turtles, <laughs> but perhaps uh, I can make a link with uh, the uh, Clean Air Day, uh, which was led by a global action plan. Um, and for 20 years, I believe, the global action plan was led by Truin Resterick. Uh, mm-hmm. And in his role, he was helping businesses uh, produce more sustainable operations and now he's moved towards working with consumers and how businesses can help their consumers um, you know deliver sustainable change um, so I spoke to truin I had to sit down with him with lovely offices in Somerset house I was mm-hmm. very jealous I mean it's a, it's a far cry from East Grinstead. Is it?
0: Yeah, what are the office? How big's the office? I mean, I don't know how many how many people have a, have. It's quite a few, isn't it? Oh, there is a lot. I
4: think he told me there was about 30 employees there, okay. uh, and it's an ever-growing business. Um, the the one thing that really struck me was the age or the demographic. He, uh-huh. I think he, he made the point that he was the oldest uh, employee oh, really? there. And uh, I think okay, he can't... Actually, I won't say how old I think he is. <laughs> he was in uh, early 30s, okay. late, late 30s possibly. But yeah, so it was... Um, it's an interesting chat, and as you say, it was in the offices um, of Hubbub. Mm-hmm. So um, please do excuse any, you know, swinging doors or phone calls that you do here. But yeah. hopefully, it should go quite yeah, well. Yeah, I
0: was just listening back, and you hear you do hear a phone ringing in the background at one point, and lots of people opening doors, closing doors. But we can hear the interview anyway. Um, so um, here's George's chat with Hubbub's founder, executive founder and yeah. uh, Restrick, in full. So, uh,
4: we're in the uh, the lovely setting of Somerset House and I'm joined by Trin Resterick, who's the uh, Chief Executive Founder of uh, Hubbub. Um, unfortunately, the lift was broken, so we had to uh, walk away up the stairs, but we've had time to catch a breath and we're doing okay now. How are you today, Trin? Yeah, Good. just about got my breath back. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, as I said, uh, founder of Hubbub, a social enterprise charity, Um maybe it'd be best for you to give the listeners who are potentially unaware of Hubbub and what you do, maybe just a potted history of where it all started for you.
1: Yeah, of course. So Hubbub started uh, about two and a half years ago, sort a very belated midlife crisis, um, <laughs> as a charity uh, with the aim of trying to get sustainability to a mainstream audience. So looked at the way that environmental issues have been communicated and we decided a fresh approach was needed to get more people interested and actively involved in in campaigning. Mm -hmm. So uh, we don't talk about sustainability in our communications, we don't talk about biodiversity, but what we do talk about is people's homes, uh, the food they eat, the clothes they wear and their neighbourhoods. Mm
4: -hmm. Okay, and um, before you uh, founded uh, you were at the Global Action Plan?
1: Yes, yeah, sort of 20 years 20 earlier. <laughs> a long time earlier, I set up Global Action Plan, which is a behaviour change charity. And before that, I worked at Friends of Earth as one of their uh, sort of fundraisers uh, and also set up another social enterprise called Round, which is a recycling business in London.
4: That's right. Um, uh, not to make you feel old, but I did do some research and uh, I th- saw that I, I wasn't actually born when you uh, founded Global Action Plan all the, all those years ago. <laughs> well, so. made very old, thank you successfully me feel thank you. So, yeah, 20 years um, at Global Action Plan, so, that was uh, more working with businesses. Uh, to. Yes,
1: yeah, so it ended up, it actually started as um, a way of sort of getting groups of people together to look at ways they could change their lifestyles at home mm. uh, with the programme. Uh, eco teams which was actually a Dutch idea Mm. but as it morphed over 20 years uh, Global Action Plan became a place which worked much more closely with the NHS uh, and with businesses with their employees on behaviour change programmes with them Uh, and I just basically looked at where it got to and it was a long way from where I originally started out and really I just thought uh, I didn't want to change the organisation it's doing very well it's doing something very valuable but it really wasn't what I was about anymore mm. so um, I decided rather than make a lot of other people unhappy and try and change the place I could leave and try and start again mm. um, which is
4: what I did okay so working now with Hubbub is yeah. moving here has it been more of an issue thinking businesses are starting to take the lead in terms of sustainability now we need to f- focus more on how we can improve the issue in, term- in the communities and with people yeah. is this...
1: so I think Hubbub is much more about um, people in their homes and their mm. everyday lives and their communities, so it's what they can do within yeah, current lifestyles really and, and how they can adapt those to be more sustainable and you know, we started with very little money, I think our original grant was £25,000 which doesn't go a very long way at all, um, and it was nip and tuck for a while, I think back in November after we started the charity had less money in its account than I did personally, which I'm not very wealthy so that was a really bad state of affairs But what's happened is that businesses in particular, and about 95% of our work is funded by businesses, have suddenly started to think, how can they get their customers engaged in Mm. their sustainability strategies? Um, And that's really the place that we operate. So helping mainly large companies like IKEA and Sainsbury's better engage with their customers to help, obviously, make their business grow, but also to help people become more environmental in their
4: lives mm. and you've done this through some quite innovative uh, collaborations um i think this came about actually through uh we reported on the um partnership you did with lucas aid um this uh, whole trash converter van which yes. i think is such a genius idea maybe you could just uh, elaborate on that campaign yeah
1: so 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 one of the things that we decided to do right from the start was to be as innovative as we could and take a totally different approach. So what happens is that businesses come to us with particular challenges um, that they want to address. So this one was um, LucasAid. They have a huge factory in uh, the Forest of Dean in a small town called Colford. Mm. Uh, And they wanted to basically help their local community. And so what we did was we spent a lot of time going around talking to community groups, to the employees within the factory to find out what concerned them and what interested them. And what came out of it was they're in an ancient woodland, they love their ancient woodland, so that's where the Love Your Forest campaign came from, uh, and they were highly concerned about the amount of littering in the forest. So we've basically run a load of campaigns uh, in the forest to try and raise awareness and also to change behaviour. So. Last year we created the UK's first ever litter shop where we collected litter in the forest and displayed it in an empty shop in the town. Uh, We had sort of crisp packets which were older than me, not quite older than me, but quite old, sort of 30-odd years old. Um, uh, And it basically showed people that once they dropped a crisp packet in the forest, it stayed there for a huge amount of time. Uh, And this year, yeah, we did the trash converter van, which was uh, one of those beautiful old Citroën vans which constantly broke down. Mm. Um, But basically the idea was that uh, it was mainly aimed at sort of young people and roadside littering, so uh, people handed in trash or litter that they collected into the van, and they got a free gift from the van. And it's just been massively successful in engaging young people, school schoolchildren. Uh, they've gone out, they've cleaned it from the forest, and they've been rewarded with mm. sort of popcorn
4: and other things. Mm. I suppose campaigns like this go to at the heart of the issue of trying to tackle what is a growing problem within the UK. You know, we've got um, falling recycling rates, um, we've got consumer food wastes on, on the rise, and I suppose there's not a single approach that can be taken. Um,
1: no, I think all, all of the campaigns we run are based on that sort of initial insight, and deep insight, and that's led to sort of solutions which we didn't really have any clue that we'd come up with. So um, another one of our littering campaigns... Uh, was in the heart of London, uh, and we, based on the research we did, we came up with uh, a voting cigarette bin, so we found that cigarette butts were the most dropped item on the floor, Mm. largely by young lads, and so we created a bin which asked a topical sporting question, who's the best football player in the world, is it Ronaldo or Messi, and got people to vote with their cigarette butts. Um, So that's reduced uh, cigarette littering by around 20%, Um, and it's just a playful way to nudge people to change their behaviour. So mm. that was one solution. We work, we've been working with Sainsbury's on food waste, mm. uh, and with them, we've created the concept of a community fridge, which is like an honesty fridge, where retailers or local people can put food, perishable food that would have be been wasted, into the fridge, and then that's redistributed to people in the local community who need it most. So again, it's a sort of quite an, an novel, a novel way of, of addressing a, sort of one of those stubborn problems that that we. Confronted with all
4: the time. Mm, you mentioned there's a, a number of collaborations, there, Sainsbury's. I know, I think you've done a bit of work with IKEA too. Yeah,
1: so IKEA, we, we love working with IKEA. <laughs> so, this is um, uh, the challenge for them was how do they boost the sales of their products that they sell, which help people to reduce energy in their home, or cut water use, or uh, reduce waste, or live a healthier lifestyle. Um, so how can they get consumers to buy those products, but also obviously to benefit from them. Mm. So the campaign we created with them is called "Live Legom. Lagom is this sort of fantastic Swedish word, it's like Goldilocks, not too much, not too little, sort of imbalance. Um, and what we've done is we've selected in partnership with the University of Surrey, um, consumers that represent sort of broad socioeconomic grouping. Uh, given them money to go out to choose products in IKEA's range which meet the, the sustainability criteria, and then to tell their story in all forms of social media. Uh, and what we've got is we've got more informed workforce at so IKEA who understand about sustainability, and we've got IKEA's customers um, talking about the products they've bought and how it's improved their lives. Uh, we've got the University of Surrey measuring it, and uh, IKEA's sale of those products has gone up to about 13.4% growth last year so you know it's working for the company but it's also having a much bigger impact uh, on the environment because we're engaging with such a huge company.
2: Mm.
4: And so working with these companies, these industry leaders uh, within sustainability, what is it do you think that they all have in common? Is it, I suppose, in CEOs who get it would be a, a starting point? Um,
1: Sorry. Yeah, I think I mean that yes, they have CEOs who get it, and I think that the, the companies we work with have also reached the point where they've done as much as they can easily internally. Um, they've they've sort of made the changes that they can control, but they're all now asking, well, how can we influence others? How can we influence our customer base, which is often the biggest impact they can have, uh, and that's really difficult for companies because you know you can't turn into a nanny state. You can't sort of be telling people how to live their lives you, you know you do, it's a very fine line for a business in terms of how much influence it can have and so they're trying to do it in a way which is creative which is sort of playful which is, is not thou shoutish uh, and I think that's what they're all struggling with is, is how do you do that really effectively uh, and bring your consumers and your customers along with you on your sustainability journey otherwise companies you know can say amazing things mm. But, you know, if the, if the customer doesn't get it or doesn't understand, then that's quite a dangerous place for
4: business to be. Mm. Mm. And I think while biz- businesses can play their role, and you can see working with you that companies are starting to take notice, it um, will take a lot of work from legislation, yeah. uh, working, I assume, you do quite a lot of work with government.
1: We try to, <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I, I mean, I think government basically on part of the picture okay and our national government in particular. Local government is massively under-resourced and they're really stretched and you know local authorities are really struggling to provide basic services at the moment so you know they haven't got a lot of space and time to think about this and um, national government uh, you know the dealings we've had with them around the litter strategy, the food waste strategy you know they're, they're just miles behind totally honestly um, you know I've been involved in trying to create a litter strategy for a year and a half Uh, I don't think it's progressed to any great extent Um, DEFRA is sort of under-resourced it's got Brexit to worry about Mm. Um, and the government is very very wary about intervening to any great extent so uh, I think unfortunately businesses uh, are ahead I think consumers are getting increasingly concerned uh, and government is really the laggard in the in the piece at the moment.
4: Okay. Um, when this goes out, we will have a new government. Maybe <coughs> it will be yet. But if, what what advice or what what would your main thing be for the next government?
1: Well, I think you know. I think people are quite disillusioned with national politics at the moment. I mm. think one of the reasons they're disillusioned with national politics is that government are not talking to people directly about the things that are really affecting their everyday lives and. You know, that's things like sort of food price rises, energy price rises. Um, and one of the best ways to deal with both of those things is to use energy as efficiently as possible uh, and to reduce things like food waste. And I think government needs to be much more proactive in, in helping households do those things, for example, through a national energy efficiency strategy, uh, rather than sort of harking on about fracking. Hmm. You know, there's so many things government can be doing to help Households cope with with everyday pressures, and I would definitely urge any government of whatever colour to, to look at that. And I think the other thing is that you know we're facing a sort of a bit of a national infrastructure crisis in many areas. So you know we've just had the driest winter on record. Um, you know there, there there are real sort of pressures on our on our water supplies, um, which hits agriculture, causes food prices to rise. Um, and businesses and government needs to take a long term strategic look at those things because climate change and population growth is going to put even further pressures on, on basic sort of infrastructure mm. and our basic resource needs and government no government of any color seems to be taking a long term view of these things
4: no that then that seems to be the case where businesses come in and take up that where well, there's that vacuum Uh, to come in
1: yeah I mean businesses are because they you know they're looking at the future they're much more long term and and they need to operate and they need to survive and they need to have a license to 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 work so they are thinking about it but they can't do it on their own you know you you need you need like you said you need legislation you Mm. need government to be creating the the investment strategy that makes it possible for companies to invest in the right, right sort of renewable energy Strategies to invest in sort of the best water efficiency measures. To invest in sort of the circular economy. And, and if government doesn't play the game, then industry, you know, becomes a lot, lot harder for industry to mm. do that. And also, the laggards can get away with with doing nothing.
4: Mm. Mm. um Yeah. Well, I think a key thing for businesses, if they're not going to receive the support from the government, will be to work together in collaboration. I know that you've been doing a lot of uh, good work in terms of this uh, Zero Waste Britain. You've got signatories, I think g- close to 250, potentially more than that. Um, you've also been working with the um, the Coffee Cup Waste yeah. in London. Was yeah. it there with the Square Mile Challenge. The Square Mile yeah. Challenge, yeah. Um, I think with the Global Waste Britain, uh, we've got the 200 50 signed up, but how do you make sure you you can turn pledges into real action?
1: Yeah, I think um, I mean it's very diff- difficult because a lot of businesses say they'll collaborate, and when no. push comes to shove, you know, competitive <laughs> requirements win out. So I think the Square Mile Challenge is a really good example. So we managed to get virtually all the high street retailers behind the Square Mile Challenge campaign. Uh, we got the manufacturers involved and the, the waste industry, uh, and in one month in the centre of London, we recycled over 500,000 disposable coffee cups. Um, And I think that shows what the power of collaboration can be if you have a campaign which is really focused, has a really clear message, has a strong behaviour change element to it, uh, and has all the key players behind it. But it takes a long time to get that degree of collaboration. You know you've got to get everybody signing up to the same message, same branding, same communication structure. You've got to get everybody... In lines and nobody jumps a gun to get sort of personal or corporate advantage from it. So it is difficult, and I think you know where organizations such as Hubbub are needed is that to do that, you need, you need an independent organization that can act as the facilitator and the catalyst for those campaigns. Mm. Uh, and I think those are skills that, in a very short time, we've only been going for two years, that we've been able to develop, and businesses are now starting to trust us. I think there's a shortage of those capitalist organisations that, that can act as the honest broker between potential competitors mm. uh, for the greater good, and I think there needs to be more
4: of
2: that. Mm.
4: <clears throat> We're also seeing a lot of rise into sort of these new business models, you know, the types of like servitisation, the sharing economy. Yeah. Do you see that playing a, a big role in the future?
1: Well, hopefully, we've <coughs> got to. I mean, we can't we can't keep consuming at the rate we are. Uh, and financially, lots of households can't afford to consuming at the rate we are, but also you know, in terms of the wider sort of environmental limits of the, of the earth. But we've been looking at for a long time about the sharing model. Mm. Um, and we've run campaigns for people like Mother Care, yeah. yeah. which uh, shows that people are willing to share. But we've also tried to look at how do you get streets to share. So we've been uh, working on a campaign called The Street that Shares for probably about six or seven months now. And it hasn't really come to fruition yet. And the reason is that there's a huge amount of distrust between people. You'll feel stuff will be vandalised. You know, you think people take advantage of a sharing system. So I think it's uh, it's a great thing in theory. Um, but, but making it happen in practice is going to be very,
4: very difficult. Mm. Um, yeah, because we, I mean, we've... It's, these are all a very good concepts and theory. But, I mean, when you haven't seen, played out in practice a lot, I think Argos potentially <laughs> have got a take-back scheme going. Uh, yeah. I think IKEA do as yeah. well. Yeah. But other than that, there doesn't seem to be too much going on in now, that area No, there's
1: been lots of sort of lofty reports about, you know, the circular economy can boost our over-economy by X billion pounds. Mm. And, but I think making it happen in practice is... You, you know, you need to start working much more closely with people and overcoming a whole range of sort of social and, and other sort of barriers, particularly around trust mm. um to, to really make it work. So and very few businesses are willing to go there at the moment.
4: Mm. It's, I suppose it's, it's, there's this circle of businesses expect the consumers to st- step up their efforts and then consumers expect it from businesses and you've got local authorities as yeah. well and it's just a mess there. Where, where do you think it should derive from? Is it, is it, should it be a top-down approach? Or? Well,
1: I don't think it can be. I think that the only way it will work is if that, every, if that people can see that actually this is a personal benefit for them which is they have a better quality of life on less money and there's a community benefit which is you know i'm in a community where i feel safer where i trust my neighbors more uh, and i feel more confident and i think you have to be able to demonstrate to people that those things happen Um, and i think you know what's interesting so we've created this community fridge and everybody said oh it'd be you know be abused you know we need to put security cameras up Uh, and we've been running one in London and one in Derbyshire, uh, and it hasn't been abused at all. Mm. And, you know, businesses are providing fruit and vegetables and healthy food into the fridge, and it's being distributed to people who really need it, and other local people are just using it as a complete honesty fridge. So, you know, if you can show it works, if you put it there, actually a lot of the preconceived views of people have never come to pass. So I think you have to... And that's, again, an approach we always take the hub of, is you can only find out stuff by doing it. Mm. You know, you can write conceptual documents, like loads of things, but until you actually put something physically in the community and watch what happens and refine it, you never really know what's going to occur.
4: Mm, definitely. Um, quite interested, I went on your website earlier, um, looking sort of at the format I think it seems to be very geared up to working with with youth and you know working with the millennials you've got this youtube vlogging channel yeah um, yeah um, I think you're pretty much on every social media platform going um so it seems to be that you're more channeling your engagement with with the youth and the, do you see that as them being the, the change. Yeah, that's
1: probably because I'm old and they're young. <laughs> um, and I think we social media is really, really important mm. form of communication and engagement for us. So what we try and do is do something practical on the ground, and then use social media in all forms to to really shout about it. Um, the vlogging channel is, is an interesting experiment for us. So we put out a new video every week. Um, around sustainability and we try and sort of communicate things in a way which we think is compelling and different and engaging and, uh, and yes that is definitely aimed at mm. you know the younger audience. Um, it's, it's a real challenge for, it's a really good challenge for the charity because it means every week you have to think about what the messages we've got which might sort of be of interest to people and how on earth do we communicate it. So it's a really great discipline for us. And the videos, I think, you know, subscription has been slow to start with, but it's gradually picking up. Um, So it's been a lot harder than we thought. But the views on the videos have been huge. Mm. So like the video we did on Nudge Theory around the bins, I think it's had over 100,000 views. So it's too early to tell whether it's having much of an impact or... But, you know, again, we thought it was something that we had to try. And there aren't many other environmental charities out there using vlogging as a way of getting your Mm. message out so why not have a go is
4: what we thought definitely i I think it seems to be the future and you've tapped into that niche hopefully you can sustain that and hope the momentum will continue to build yeah
1: i think i I think that's why businesses like working with us Mm. because we need to try new things and i think the challenge for us is you know we have to keep coming up with new and Fresh approaches, <laughs> so it's it's quite exhausting. I mean, mm. we've actually set up a social enterprise <coughs> now to take our best ideas to scale. Um, so that's a separate company owned by the charity. Um, so they, yeah, they take things like the ballot bin out to a mass market, and that leaves time for the charity to keep sort of coming up with new campaigns.
4: Mm-hmm. And then we've got we've got charities like yourselves. We've also got you know. Fernie was always holding the baton for resource efficiency with his warm waste. But his series focused on you know textile waste and then went on to coffee cups. For you personally, where do you see the like the warm waste heading next?
1: So I think I mean Hugh is amazingly effective at getting a message out to a mass audience mm. and you know he shakes up industry mm. and Traditionally, that role would used to be filled by campaign groups, like Friends of the Earth, but, you know, Hugh's taken on that baton. And you need people to ruffle feathers, and you need people to highlight sort of where, where the risks are um, for the environment. And I think he's great at that, mm. absolutely great. Where he's going to go next, um, I suspect, you know, there'll be people who make those little pots, in the new sort of coffee pots mm. might be a little nervous yeah. I should think people who make sandwich wrappers and all the other sort of, sort of mixed uh, packaging are probably quite nervous uh, and then the other massive campaign area that we see is growing and growing and growing is around plastics particularly plastics in our waterways and the oceans so you know whether Hugh takes that on or not I, d- I don't know but you know Sky just launched Ocean Rescue mm. uh, backed by uh, Prince Prince Wales, you know, highlighting the ever increasing amount of plastics in our oceans. So, you know, those these are campaigns that are going to grow and become increasingly influential. I think.
4: Mm. And uh, for Hubbub, what's next? I know you you, you talked about plastics. There's, there's a campaign going on with.
1: Yeah. So we're doing a, a campaign called uh, FFS, which obviously stands for Fish Sake, um, which is about taking plastics. Uh, another litter out of the River Thames so that's a campaign that we launched uh, a few weeks back um, we're going to be creating a national network of community fridges uh, we're going to ro- be running a really interesting campaign called Bring Back Heavy Metal which is about battery recycling um, and then uh, as we go on into the autumn uh, we're going to launch uh, plastics fishing uh, campaign which will basically be taking plastics out of the waterways and turning them into recycled plastic boats to run more plastic fishing trips. So we've got sort of another six months of campaigns sort of back to back and all lined up, um, sort of ready to go really.
4: Well that all sounds like really interesting things, It's all very pertinent as well so we look forward to seeing what happens in the next few months but um, other than that I think that's all for now so thank you for your time, Drew. Brilliant,
1: lovely, thanks for your time. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Well, there you go. Uh, fascinating chat there with Truin. Um, yeah, that square mile challenge he talked about is a great example of um, collaboration in, in action. Um, also really interesting to hear him talking quite candidly about the need for stronger policy from this new government. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. So, um, yeah, we've got the party started. Now, Matt, your turn to keep the keep the levels up. What have you got for us next?
3: Yeah, so last
0: week, um,
3: I, I popped up to London, off to the uh, Natural History Museum. Um, didn't see any sea turtles there, um, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but I did I did see a rather impressive presentation put on by uh, S.C. Johnson. And um, it was basically the launch of the Under, under the Canopy virtual reality film. Hmm. Um, basically, just an example of how they're working with um, Conservation International on you know deforestation and, and heightening the awareness of it and so basically the, the film works um you put your little virtual reality headset on you're sitting on a spinny chair and you get a 15 15 minute um tour of the amazon um you start at the treetops you drop down you see a couple of sloths on the way um mm-hmm. and you just walk around with um one of the kind of he's not necessarily a tribesman, but someone that's local to the area and, and what the area means to him and how he interacts with it every day. So oh, really? it's, it's, it's one of those things, I always think, you know, going back to Global Action Plan, one thing that always stuck with me was Chris Large. We said, you know, um, polar bears don't sell, doesn't sell climate mm. change to, to the individual person. Yeah. But if you can actually put them in that immediate environment and give them a chance to explore in that way, it, it resonates much more much more highly. At Mm. least that's the experience I took away
0: from it. Well, yeah, I think the amount of people I've met in sustainability who, when you ask, you know, what really inspired them to get into the job, um, often it is something like that. It's something like being out, being in the Arctic, for example, and seeing Mm. climate change happening around them, or being in the rainforest and looking at endangered species and seeing deforestation happening in front of them. So I guess VR, in that sense, has actually got a good role to play in terms of, driving engagement and raising it raising awareness in a way that it couldn't before. What was that experience like VR? I've not I've not put on a pair of it's, VR goggles before. It will it
3: gave me a headache, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. The um the the concept's brilliant. I think the execution is still slightly lacking, but it is um it is just interesting, you know, you're it was almost like a little mini cinema, but with these spinny chairs. Yeah. And I, I remember various points where I was turning around and, like, smacking knees against the person oh, sitting, really. sitting next to me. But it just, it does, it, it puts you, it drops you right in the heart of yeah. what that message they're trying to give you. So it's it's definitely something that will be a powerful comms tool, I'd say, yeah.
0: A powerful comms tool and probably one for the health and safety department as well. I've seen some <laughs> exactly, funny yeah. videos on YouTube of... Uh, people wearing them for the first time. It was was a concern
3: of mine that as you start at the top of this big kind of tree and you (laughs) kind of look down and I did just imagine myself just leaning forward and and and, falling.
0: strange, bizarre. Mm. Um, Anyway, so you actually took this time uh, whilst enjoying yourself with a VR headset. You uh, took the time to speak to someone from SC Johnson, representative from the sustainability team? Yeah, uh, senior
3: vice president of sustainability. Yeah. Um, And... She was actually speaking in London earlier that day at a uh, Responsible Business Summit and you know, I could tell just from listening for about fifteen minutes there that she's just so connected to that brand and its purpose. Mm.
0: This is Kelly Kelly Semrau, isn't it? Yeah, Kelly
3: Kelly Semra, which I, I, I think I, I butchered the pronunciation when I met her in person. Um, <laughs> so yeah, she I think she could forgave me, though, know? so we're we're on good terms. Okay. Um and yeah, Kelly's just very deeply connected to the company and what it stands for. And she's clearly proud of what they're, what they're doing. And they're, they're one of those companies that are going beyond what they do. They're really targeting, not just their own internal targets. She, she had a whole five, ten minute session on, on her like chasing greenwashing and as a whole in that sector and how it was diluting trust. It's consumers and and clearly a good way to build trust is through the stories you can tell and if you can show them stories like what they've done with this VR it's going to strengthen that brand connection so
0: Hmm. okay well so here's um, Matt's chat with SC Johnson's Senior Vice President of Sustainability Kelly Semrau in full okay so I'm here at the
3: Natural History Museum Um, we've managed to commandeer the bird room Um, there's a load of rather exotic and I think um, some extinct birds perhaps Around me, which is fit fitting, um, I suppose, when we're talking about sustainability and climate change. And um, I've come to watch the Under the Canopy Screaming, um, which has been described by the invite as a journey through the rainforest via a new virtual reality experience from the Amazon. Um, it's been produced by uh, Conservation International and um, clean and product specialist SC Johnson and um, in anticipation of the viewing, I've managed to grab some time with Kelly Semral. Apologies if I haven't pronounced that right. You've pronounced uh, <laughs> it right. <laughs> uh, Senior Vice President um, for, for Corporate Strategy, or is it Sustainability? Both. Both, Both. there you go. Um, at S.E. Johnson. So, Kelly, thank you very much for putting aside some time to talk to us. I realise we've had a couple of technical um, issues. Again, probably fitting for the Natural History Museum. Um, but So we'll try and keep this nice and, and quick. But so for people perhaps who are listening at home, um, perhaps having a cup of tea next to a Glade candle, or they're in the kitchen um, scrubbing away with some Mr. Muscle. How, how do those products um, get linked to the Amazon rainforest, which is why we're here today?
2: We are a company that makes great products, but we're a company that has a conscience, a conscience that we care desperately about our planet. And the Amazon is one of those things that we care about. It is the lungs for North and South America. It helps... With climate change, it controls weather patterns. So when Conservation International approached us with an idea about a virtual reality film, I jumped at the chance because it would allow kids and parents and teachers to really experience the Amazon and then perhaps want to protect it. So that's what we're about, protecting our environment and our planet, and we want to make great products while we do that.
3: And this, of course, um, it began with the formation of a kind of acre-for-acre acre challenge, um, if I'm right. We covered that story um, when, it, when it came out. And it was to encourage consumers to do just that, and they were meant to donate um, and to protect um, the environment. Um, I think the challenge was they would um, donate for up to 5,000 acres of protection, and you would match that. And you announced today that that's gone better than expected,
2: am I right in saying? It has been spectacular. Um, We did do the the acre for acre match because we wanted to engage the citizenry into protecting something that is just so important for the planet. And so in about 60 days, we met our goal. We thought it would take us six months because an acre costs 25 U.S. dollars, and we matched it. But the other important thing is that um, we met our goal, which was fantastic, but SC Johnson, over the years, we've protected over 100,000 acres. That's nearly 50,000 hectares um, of the Amazon rainforest. We're proud of that. We made sure that it's gone into conservation um, programs as well as helping the indigenous folks that live there be able to live and not cut down those forests.
3: And um, earlier in this podcast episode, um, our other reporter, George, he was um, in London talking to Hubbub, a kind of um, national charity, and they were really talking about how to turn these pledges into tangible action that delivers benefits. So, um, you know, this has clearly worked for you. How, how did you go around really driving that engagement?
2: It was fun. <laughs> I have a great team of people. What we did is we went around the United States and to places like this here in London And we just brought the movie to people, and we asked them to view it. And we had thousands and thousands of people view it. And then all of a sudden, the pledges just started building up. One day, it was great. Somebody ran into my office, and they said, we're almost there. And it was just literally about 45 days after we started the pledge and the program. So engaging consumers and helping consumers in a simple way Um, Get involved with the planet is key. I think if we don't do that, it's easy to step back and not do anything. It's easy to get involved, and that's why this program worked.
3: And the the balance of um, initiatives that are aimed towards consumers, is it a case of this is something you deliver to them and get them engaged with? Or is this something they're calling for for you to actively change?
2: Is there, is there a bit of a balance there? Or? There is absolutely a balance. We listen to what our customers or consumers care about. And old growth forests here in this continent, because there's plenty of them, as well as in Asia, in the Amazon, it's something that people understand. Trees are our best air filter they work beautifully. We've just got to protect them.
3: And um, I'm right in thinking that SC Johnson is mem- member of the Consumer Goods Forum.
2: We absolutely are. Yeah,
3: um, and obviously one of the one of the key kind of drivers they're trying to do is is to commit to deforestation pledges by by 2020. Um, so in in your kind of work, you mentioned it was over 100,000 hectares, I think, protected. What, what kind of barriers um, are you finding when it comes to kind of combating deforestation and in protecting the natural environment?
2: Absolutely. The first thing is that you have to have different ways for the indigenous people to live and and have an economy. In large part, oftentimes they're incented to cut down the trees on their land to grow soy or corn. And, and so you've got to look at other ways in which you can provide um, a livelihood. So coffee, for instance, grown underneath the canopy. There's different things that organizations have worked with the indigenous folks so that they can earn a livelihood. That's key. The second thing is policy changes. We've worked with Conservation International and other organizations like CGF, the Consumer Goods Forum, because you have to have policy changes. So talking to governments in Indonesia, Brazil, Argentina, very important to get the governments to understand the asset that those old growth forests are so policy changes is number two and the third thing is it takes a village to do this you need to have the experts to help people protect it and you also need to make sure that it's managed so There isn't poaching. There isn't, in the middle of the night, uh, uh, several hectares cut down or burnt, as we've seen in some parts of the world. So there's there's really a three-pronged approach. Make sure that the indigenous people have a way in which to live, policy changes, and then protection of that conservation.
3: And it's obviously all well and good to to have that understanding, but um, we were both at the Responsible Business Summit earlier this morning, and I was listening to you talk about um, greenwashing being a, a really kind of a real problem in your own, I think you said it kind of dilutes trust amongst con- consumers. So, um, and I know um, from speaking to people at the Rainforest Alliance that greenwashing—not so much greenwashing, but making pledges. And then just kind of leaving that to rest for a bit is one of the issues. There's a real lack of action. So, so how, do, how do businesses, um, or I suppose how do consumers kind of separate the, the fact from fiction in, in companies that are making these pledges but perhaps not delivering?
2: That's a great insight. What I would recommend for consumers is to really go on to those companies' social media, websites, call them. Um, and and find out what their commitments are read up about them if they can but in our case we absolutely believe that we don't do this as a marketing campaign you don't see this on our products you basically see it as a corporate message so it's not as if we've launched a product and we're doing this as a one-and-done if you look at our record with CI over the past couple of decades. That's where we've saved 100,000 acres because we sustain our efforts. So good question. We sometimes don't like it when it's just a, a, a short burst and then the company goes away. We pick a few issues and then we stay with those at SC Johnson.
3: And I imagine partnering with um, people like um, The Conservation International, as you have done on this, is a good way to kind of keep you in check almost. And obviously the reason we're here today is is the launch of this, this film. It uses um, virtual reality, which is just, I think, a fascinating area globally, let alone in sustainability. I actually got to watch the trailer um, when you announced the launch. Um, I watched it in the office. We had those little cardboard VR um, headsets. So I was watching that, I was... Um, and I was quite surprised. It was really surreal just to be at your desk and then dropped into the heart of the Amazon. And um, I think at one point I turned around and there was, there was a snake behind me. And I, I literally jumped out of my seat, got some weird looks in the office. But, um, but it, it really worked to put me at the heart of the issue. And I imagine it will do to the same to, to people that watched it. My, my question to you is, do you feel that virtual reality is a, is a real potential Game changer for the way that companies can communicate their sustainability initiatives.
2: I absolutely believe that. It's an unlock because very few people can travel to the Amazon or travel to places in the world and view it. So to be put into that environment with virtual reality, it will unlock the way we can explain environmental issues to people at large. For instance, I love your description. I was able to watch my daughter look at the film, and she was looking up, down, sideways. She also jumped when the <laughs> snake slithered down the tree. When you're put in the heart of the environmental um, place, you can't... You, there, there's only one thing to do, and that's to engage and to understand it. So I do think VR, virtual reality, is a real unlock. And Conservation International, when they brought us the idea, I leapt at The opportunity to partner with them to produce this incredible film and I'm excited I want you to see it in the real VR tonight because it's amazing the sound is is 3D the VR puts you right there in the Amazon and you walk away changed and that's what we want we want people to walk away from this experience changed
3: and, and does that change last indefinitely? I mean, I only watched the trailer and I was definitely aware of what, going to, what was going on, although it's my job to be aware as a journalist around those issues. But, but for the everyday consumer, if they watch that, they might feel this kind of profound change in them. But, but does it last when it's not on their doorstep? How, how can businesses make sure that that link, that probably emotive link that's been established, sticks?
2: I think that is what we need to do. And that's a good challenge for companies like SC Johnson or CI to make sure that emotion sticks. But I can tell you that I saw it back in December, first cut before it was final. And I don't think there's a week that goes by since December, so we're now in June, that I haven't thought about something or if it's easy not to recycle something. And I think, oh, no, there's paper in there. You know, paper comes from old-growth forests or sometimes non-old-growth forests. It's just really made—it's it's a great general reminder. So I hope it sticks, but also it's a challenge to companies like ours to continue this.
3: Okay, got Well um I think the film is actually um, about to start um, now. I'm not sure if there's trailers beforehand or if we get popcorn, but I- I'm worried that I don't want to be late to watch this, and I'm, I'm sure you don't um, I either. I don't either. So um, it's-, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and um, I- I- I'm sure we'll both enjoy the film.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. Well,
0: there you go, Matt. Uh, sounded like you enjoyed yourself at that event, and, um, yeah, she sounds like a fascinating speakie. All right. Um, it'd be great to actually have her on one of Edie's events, so... Yeah, Kelly, if you're listening, we're, we're, we're coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I think we're just about done. But before uh, before we finish the episode, I think uh, it's probably worth bringing Ant and Deck back in here um, for some of their uh, the sign-offs. George, usually at this point, you're bringing your sustainability success story of the week. Do you have one for us, something that will wow us or mm. impress
4: us? I'm not sure if it will wow you. I mean, <laughs> I'll try my best. So uh, be a first. <it>? Well, it was was something I saw, actually, just before we were coming up the stairs. um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That that recently, just coming
0: up the stairs. This is the sustainability story of the week. Yes, it is. Okay.
4: it's something that Matt reported on. Um, Apple issued a green bond, okay. and I think it was, it's, it's significant for the sheer amount of money. Well, I think it was one billion pound uh, bond mm. for uh, you know to finance clean energy and environment uh, issues. But I think the most significant thing is it was the first bond that was issued since um, Donald Trump's uh-huh. decision to pull the US out of the Paris Agreement. And I think um, uh, Apple were making a point to say, you know. Whether he's gone or not, businesses are still on board. Mm. So it's just it's it's just good to see the response that we've had in the last week or two from businesses, in that respect.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, not to plug my own interview again, but <laughs> speaking with Paul Hawking and Erin from uh, Interface earlier this week, it's it's really interesting to hear a company like Interface as well. You know, another big US firm talking about what it really meant for them or what it what it didn't mean for them actually, and how it's really the movement now is unstoppable, and I guess, yeah, you're right, um, what Apple's doing there is sort of showing that, I guess, they would have done that regardless, you know, had that announcement not been made, so it shows that businesses have sort of broken from the shackles of policy. I'd like to um,
3: plug, uh, plug in a in an few, and a little bit of intrigue for our listeners as well, I won't say who, but uh, we've got the second instalment of our green room coming up uh, mm. soon, and the person I was speaking to, um, yeah, we inevitably got on to both the Paris Agreement and Trump, mm. and yeah they they had a um a similar view on on i suppose almost the positives that Trump has had on the paris agreement in a weird kind of way the okay. the media spotlight he's put on it
0: and the the reaction that's followed so yeah look out for that one too yeah that's a stretch make it turns a positive but i i i do not you mean mm. yeah it's sort of in a way it's galvanized consensus exactly. to sort of almost uh, you know in the face of adversity actually showing that despite um trump's move we can we can still succeed um uh, so matt on to you usually you give us your innovation of the week mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about air quality and uh i know your innovations roundup for this week is related to air quality so you're going to give us one of those or have you got something else for us to sort mm. to, to wow us to
3: impress no us? i can't really see how it's got anything to do with i can make a very loose connection with air quality, but i'm not i'm just going to talk about carpets instead it's okay. just a deep held passion of mine um no <laughs> no uh, interestingly enough um you went and spoke to Interface, and I, I got the joy of writing an article about Interface um, early early this week. Mm. In fact, it's it's stretching the uh, the bracket of innovation of the week. week. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, they basically launched a proof positive prototype uh, carpet tile, um, which doesn't sound much when you when you hear it like that. But it's the fact that it has a carbon footprint of minus two kilograms. It is essentially carbon negative. So essentially, atmospheric emissions are reduced once the manufacturing of that tile has taken place. Okay. How how? So it uses yeah, this is where it gets completed. It uses um plant derived carbon that they then put through a kind of re-entry recycling system to create um, a durable material that can then store that carbon. Okay. So not so they, they use this plant derived um, carbon, they turn it into this tile. And the re-entry recycling system they use locks that carbon in into the whole closed-loop product, so even when it's recycled again, that carbon stays within the material. Oh,
0: so it absorbs. It absorbs. The mm. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah.
3: yeah, and um, it's you know it's a it's an important step on interfaces. Uh, you know, climate takeback mission, which is you know I mentioned, Carlsberg's ridiculously ambitious sustainability strategy. You know, this is the kind of granddaddy of yeah. those targets, yeah. I suppose. That's um, know reversing climate change is is one of the overwhelms and you know yeah there's minus to... a minus two kilogram carbon carpet tiles of first step
0: interesting yeah and massive for potential green building like the future of green building if you can imagine that rolled out in yeah, excuse the part but rolled out in buildings um alongside things like we're seeing this increasingly happening with um, in construction with concrete now as well like mm-hmm. concrete that can be made to absorb co2 so um yeah fascinating um Okay, well, uh, there you have it. I think that's a wrap for uh, the Sustainable Business Covered podcast for this week. But um, as our listeners can probably tell, there's a lot coming up in terms Mm -hmm. of interviews. So um, it won't be long that we're gone for. Um, I think we'll be back in probably a week. Um, I mentioned my interview with Paul Hawking and Interface's Sustainability Officer, Chief Sustainability Officer, Erin Mizan. Um, Matt, we're heading then probably to your next... There's Island Discs style in the green room um, podcast interview with an unnamed sustainability yeah, leader. So I've been lugging, lugging that green room all around London. <laughs> <Yeah. so. laughs> and George, you got anything lined up in terms of podcast stuff?
4: I do actually, Luke. Um, on Monday, I'll be making a trip to uh, the beautiful town of Reading to uh, speak to uh, people from IKEA about their. Um, their commitment to reducing food waste. Mm, interesting. Your David Brent
0: moment then going up to Reading. Oh, um, well, that's good. So uh, thinking about food, sustainable say food waste, a new initiative they're launching, something. I still see a press release about that. So be interested to hear more about that. And I do know that the body shop are lined, being lined up as well. So I think that episode may well be a fusion of IKEA and the body shop and talking with their sustainability teams so um, lots to look forward to then um, and just before we go worth reminding our listeners uh, to make sure you do subscribe to this podcast which is free on iTunes just search for sustainable business covered also if uh, anyone listening to this podcast has a suggestion for a future episode or a comment they'd like to make uh, about any of the topics we've been discussing perhaps you want to correct us on one of our sea turtle facts or air quality facts do email us at uh, podcast at fav, F-A-V, hyphen, house, dot, com. Uh, and we can perhaps begin reading out some of those comments if we've reached that level of critical mass yet, I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, anyway, so, until next time, it's goodbye from George. Bye. Goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye.